0: Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast, where we speak with women who dare to pursue their dreams and fly, literally and metaphorically. I am your host, Sylvia Winter. As part of our season three relaunch this week, we are revisiting a few of our favorite episodes that grapple with big life themes, break down the components of change and what it takes to not just achieve, accomplish and succeed, but create a fulfilling life. In this episode, we revisit my conversation with Linda Linquist Bishop, a powerhouse. We often say that we stand on the shoulders of giants, and Linda, she is a quintessential OG. Linda has blazed trails in the all-male world of offshore yacht racing. In 1995, she and her teammates made history, she as a pit member, of America 3, the first all-women's team to compete in the America's Cup. She is a tireless competitor, thinker, strategist, and advocate for women in sport. Linda has so much to offer. So remember that every episode has a webpage on our website, whenwomenfly.com. And here you can find out more about Linda, link to her TED Talk called A Mountain of Courage Inspiring Change, and her business, Courageous Thinking, Inc. Are you confident enough to put everything on the line for an audacious dream? Let's jump in to my conversation with Linda Lindquist Bishop, previously aired as episode 30. So I'm just going to jump right in and say how happy I am to be talking to you about your journey and change, the anatomy of change, and women in sport, but let's go to the beginning. Could you tell us your story? Give us a context in which sailing became a passion for you?
1: Sure. I grew up in a western suburb of Chicago, a pretty conventional suburban life, but we had a wonderful summer every year in that we drove six hours up to northwest Michigan to a little town called Leland where my father had grown up in the summers, and so had my grandmother. I'm actually fifth generation up there. And it was a wonderful place with a little inland lake off of Lake Michigan, and that's where my sailing career started. I actually hated sailing, to be perfectly honest at the beginning. I was scared of it. My dad took us out in his uh, wooden sailboat called the Lightning, and my brother and I had to bail it out every morning because it soaked up water over the night. And when it tipped, I was really frightened. So I didn't like going to sailing school when I was 10 years old. It was fun to see my friends, but I just didn't like the sailing part. And I actually, to be honest, faked stomach sickness a couple of times to get out of sailing (laughs) because I just didn't want to (laughs) go.
0: It sounds like your family loved it though. My dad
1: did. He didn't have a big sailing career, but he had a wonderful experience in small boats up in Lake Leelanau, our lake in Leland. And then he actually took that water passion and joined the Coast Guard after college. So it was near and dear to his heart and something he wanted to give to my brother and I.
0: So was there a opportunity for you to sail throughout your childhood?
1: There was. We have a little yacht club, Leland Yacht Club, that cost $60 to belong to. And I ended up turning the corner. My brother and I bought a little boat. It was actually an Olympic class boat, which uh, they still race called 470s. And we went out and sailed together. And the first year, we yelled a lot at each other and tipped over every time we went out. And we got better and better. And then he started crewing for me. And That was kind of the turning point from hating sailing to, wow, I want to be on the water all day long.
0: So, with an upbringing like that and a love of sailing, I'm sure we can't go through all the stages, but we get to 1995. And I'd love for you to, with framing from your childhood to 1995, I'd love for you to give a synopsis of how you integrated into the sport, and then 1995, what built up to that and how things really changed.
1: Well, one thing that's become clear to me looking back is that not only for myself, but for all my teammates in 95, there was no path, and we all got there a different way. And my journey was pretty unconventional, I really had no path. I had no goal to get to the America's Cup when I was sitting in high school or even collegiate sailing at the University of Illinois. Just as a side note, our uh, practice water was the Clinton Lake, which was the cooling pond for the Clinton nuclear power plant. Wow! So it was a big incentive not to tip over because we didn't want to come up with a third eye after (laughs) practice. But I really, it was a pretty amazing situation of just putting one foot in front of the other. I sailed in college, then I came out to work in Chicago, met some people and started sailing J-24s at the Chicago Yacht Club, met some more people. My job was actually at that time working for a Swedish marine paint company, and I started to become well-known as an expert in the low-friction underwater bottom coat systems.
0: Wow, that's a niche.
1: Yep. (laughs) So when the new hottest race boat in the Great Lakes showed up, 70-foot boat called Pied Piper, they asked me to come and put this Teflon system on the bottom of the boat, and that's how I gained my credibility and started sailing the 70-footer. And that was really a big turning point, getting me into big boat racing.
0: And that was still in the Great Lakes.
1: That was still in the Great Lakes. I then moved. The paint company was acquired by a company that took me out to New Jersey. So I moved with a truck of paint out there in 89. And I started sailing on the East Coast, ended up through a referral in the Midwest with just a phenomenal group of people, Eric Swenson, who was the chairman of Norton Norton Publishing and raced in the East Coast. And that was really my first exposure. I was a Midwest girl that knew nothing of the multi-generational legacy Mm -hmm. sailing that dated back, you know, centuries and just showed up. So it was a real eye-opening experience. And one of my most embarrassing moments was Back then, we'd sleep on the boat sometimes on the weekends, and I remember waking up in the morning and not remembering the ramp up to the dock being that steep. We don't have tide out in the Great Lakes, so I had a a little embarrassing conversation, and they laughed a lot at me about that one. Right,
0: right. You don't have the tides, you don't have the salt in your hair. I mean, it's a different ballgame, but it sounds like you quickly took to that culture and also the sport on the East Coast and it that must have just opened up clearly a whole new level of sailing for you.
1: It really did. And it actually boomeranged me back to big boat sailing in the Midwest. I was doing both. And at that point I met a gentleman named Buddy Melgus, who became my great sailing mentor, Olympic gold medalist, and later went on to win the America's Cup. And it was a connection with him that ultimately got my name on the list for them to look at me for the 95 program.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you explain why this year, 1995, altered the competition for men and women and what impacts you can trace to that major moment in the history of women in sailing?
1: It was really a unicorn. A woman named Donna De Verona, who was the first woman uh, TV sportscaster on ABC, two-time Olympic gold medal swimmer, had challenged Bill Koch that maybe he could field a women's team. And to put this in perspective, Bill Koch and his 1992 men's team had just won the America's Cup. So that's like winning the Stanley Cup in hockey. And now he was being challenged to completely disregard that champion men's team and go out and field a team of women to compete and defend the Stanley Cup. And in our case, it's the America's Cup. So there was anger. There was, you know, a feeling of incredulous. People made comments such as, well, why don't you just pick a you know, group of monkeys and put them on the boat? They just couldn't understand this. But it was at a time that women's sports was really emerging and there was kind of a tipping point. Softball, the silver bullets, and the WNBA was forming. And there was just this ethos that women could do things. And we were doing what none of the other teams were. We were actually going to be put on a global stage to compete against men in the same league. And that was very, very breakthrough. And to be honest, very, very few people thought we'd even get the boat around the course, let alone be competitive.
0: Mm -hmm. So tell me more. Tell me more what it did take to bring that team together.
1: Wow. Well, as I say, when I'm speaking about our beloved team, I don't think God intended 27 type A women to (laughs) cohabitate for a year and a half.
0: I'm not sure Bill Cook uh, expected that either, but there you go.
1: No, it was uh, gender was just a nominally. They really didn't know what to do with us. We had three universities doing studies on our eating patterns we couldn't keep weight on. I ate 5,000 calories a day, lost body weight. We had women that were shotgunning and sure at 2,000 calories a can and got down to less than 8% body fat because we were going from six in the morning till seven at night, just very physical. Yeah, Psychologically, they didn't know what to do with us. Dick Dent was our amazing trainer, a head trainer from the San Diego Padres, and then also the men's team in 92. And one day in the weight room, or rather the training room, it was after a day of sailing, and a lot of us were in there getting traction and ice and all the things we needed to do to get back in the water the next day. And he looked at me and said, Linda, I need you to go out in the gym and find out why my rowers are crying. And that was a pivotal experience for me, not only in the cup, but in leadership and life. Because here were women, we had six Olympic rowers on our team. We brought these women in, they didn't know how to sail, but they were powerful. I mean, they made us look like, you know, butterflies. Mm -hmm. But they were very uncomfortable. And I went out, I had some conversations, and it became very clear here were women that had been on the Olympic podium winning medals, the absolute pinnacle of their sport. And now they're in with us, and they didn't know whether to turn right or left on the boat, what the terms meant, and what the timing meant. And they were frustrated. They were incredibly frustrated. So From that learning, we actually put together a learn to sail program for our grinders. And on the hour plus toe out to our practice every day, we'd be teaching them all about racing, the equipment. You know, it wasn't that we hadn't thought of these things, Mm -hmm. but you just assume that people know more than they do when they come into your environment. Mm -hmm. We do that in our companies all the time. We do it in book clubs. We do it Mm -hmm. in our relationships. So that was a real game changer for a lot of us to realize that we had to help them make that transition from this incredible level of elite accomplishment to literally they didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And the great thing is because they'd already achieved a high level of excellence, the highest level. They knew all the things they needed to do. They knew how to learn, what to train for, what type of things they had to learn, and how to optimize that extra 1-2% that gets you at the elite level. So instead of what had taken them 10, 15, 20 years in their rowing career, we could get them up to that elite level in six months.
0: Mm -hmm. So you had basically collected and cherry-picked for sort of strength and the athleticism of these women but they were new to sailing or effectively new to the sport that you were coming together to do. So that's when you needed to kind of take a step back and really onboard them like literally and in the whole in the whole person, right?
1: Exactly. And this was not unique in our sport especially in the America's Cup. The men's team had gone to the NFL for grinders and elite swimmers that were tall for mass men. So we weren't doing anything unconventional. It was actually just going out in the sports world and finding our best assets. Mm-hmm. And then we had two other non-sailors on board. We had Stephanie Armitage Johnson. We called her the brick. She was an Olympic power lifter. Huh. And then Shelly Beatty, who was known as the siren on the American Gladiators, which dates me, but uh, uh, probably the first of those reality kind of competition shows. And on top of it, Shelley was deaf, so the grinders, because she was one, took it upon themselves that four of them learned to sign, so that they could teach Shelley. So it was just this amazing, wow. you know, set of learnings and camaraderie that came from how do we accelerate getting to a, a place of excellence together.
0: And I want to talk more about that learning lab aspect, but first, a couple definitions. Can you define grinder? and what your role was.
1: Grinders, and we still use them today. They showed up in this year's America's Cup. They're the powerhouse, the engine. We don't have motors on these boats. And the motors actually are the sails because they capture the wind and make the boat move forward. But to move the sails in and out, there is a lot of load. I mean, on our boats, the main sheets had 21,000 pounds of load on them. So we have big drums, round, cylinders on the deck. The ropes that are attached to the sails go around those cylinders and the cylinders are actually connected under the deck to what look like two sets of, what would they be? Kind of like bike handles, but you spin them. And when you spin them, it turns a crankshaft and it turns the drums around and it pulls the ropes in. So those are called grinders and they are literally pedestals in the boat and with the two sets of handles. So we have four of those pedestals on our boat. So we have eight people grinding and they can switch out between different cylinders or drums as we call them or winches. So we can be grinding in different things at the same time. So There's a lot of coordination. There's hydraulics, there's technology, and at the end of the day, pure power and stamina.
0: Wow. And what was your role?
1: I was in the very glamorous uh, spot, which is my area of expertise called the pit. (laughs) It's the middle of the boat, and we call it sometimes the octopus role because it requires eight arms. This is where I don't initiate anything. I can't be a hero. All I can do is make other people heroes. So I pull the end of the rope or, or line or halyard, as we call them, that somebody else is pulling on further up the boat. It might be a bowman or massman. I coordinate with the back of the boat from a communication standpoint. So the pit is kind of the nerve center. You take care of uh, things down below. And I love it because you have to be very strategically aware, not only of what's going on on the boat, but what's going on outside the boat. Where are the competitors? Because you want to be mentally a step ahead of the game and be ready for what the back of the boat is going to call from a next maneuver standpoint, because you don't want to get behind. Mm-hmm. So I my personal model, which I would never tell the guys, but is to serve with excellence in that role, because that's really what I'm doing is making everybody else able to achieve what they're doing.
0: Yeah, it's headquarters.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And to be honest, that's the role I have in my business and my consulting. Yeah, that's how I serve my clients. So it it fits very well with who I am and consistent with my life.
0: I would love for you to explain more how competitive sailing was used as your learning lab and especially how it links to lessons that you've garnered about fear, leadership, motivation. Can you speak to that?
1: I'll be bold, but I don't think unfounded and saying I believe racing sailing is probably the best leadership development strategy and team building lab that exist. And for these reasons, team sport is fantastic for all those things, leadership, strategy, you know, personal development. But in sailing, you add a few more elements. One, you add what I say is a dynamic, uh, unpredictable game board. So if you go up for a shot in basketball, you know where the floor is when you come down. That is not the case in sailing. We're out there in one to six foot or more waves. The boat's bucking up under you. Your level of physical strength has to be such that you're not getting injured when you're contorted, not in the shape you thought you were going to be to do some powerful thing. So this dynamic game board is you know, a reality. And I believe on the business side of things really reflects the dynamics of of business, our markets, all the things that affect business that we aren't ready for and are unpredictable. Hmm. So that's the game board dynamic that I think is so outstanding. You add weather, you know, Hmm. waves, the competitors and the competitors quantumly multiplies because Competitors also are in unpredictable, dynamic game boards. Mm-hmm. So back to the basketball analogy, if you know a competitor goes up for a layup, you know where he's going to land.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're not sure when somebody turns their boat, if they turn into a six-foot wave, they may come down in a different place than we thought, and a foul may occur. Or So there's that. Then there's the team aspect of it, all the way from your personal self. I say there is no I in team, but there is an M-E. There is a me. And our first responsibility is to be our best self because you can't give to the team what you don't have. I know that sounds corny, but you can't be out hooting it up with the turkeys, as my father used to say, and then fly with the eagles in the morning and be your best. You have the responsibility to bring your best self to the game, and what does that mean? That's you know your mental state, your physical state, your sleep, your nutrition. And then it dovetails into team. And anytime you're in high performance, you're gonna be in high conflict situations, mm-hmm. not just with the competitors, I would say even more so with your own team. And when you're competing for the A string, as you do in elite sports, that competition within your team can get pretty brutal Mm -hmm. and not pretty. And we found out every day who was sailing on the A boat and who was sailing on the B boat, and that was rough. And because you need to come together as a team and do your best, and yet at the same time, you're competing with the other people. Now, take that side out of it. The team-building side of sailing is extraordinary because – The level of uh, communication, of knowing what other people are doing. I think the biggest thing for me that translates into business, and I wish we could be so much better at it, is clear role definition everybody knows what each other's role is and it's your responsibility to do your own role first and then if you can back somebody up, if you hear something's needed, you see something, you go do that, but you have to do your job first. Mm -hmm. No one's in your lane. If you don't do it, nobody else does. Mm -hmm. And when we can do that in our organizations, oh my gosh, the conflict we take out, the waste we take out, we empower people, then we know how to develop people in their areas and roles. And it just... Gets clean and wonderful. But for the most part, we find we have a lot of work we can do on that in other places.
0: That's so interesting. So let me use this as a segue and ask you this question. Your TED talk, A Mountain of Courage, has drawn from your personal journey. And you speak to the courage to embrace and excel in in the face of difficult changes. Can you introduce your personal journey and the journey that led you to create create Creatious Thinking, Inc., your initiative there, and just how that framed your way of thinking about change and the anatomy of change?
1: Well, I think that journey was similar to my sailing journey. I didn't get up one day and say, this is what I want to bring out to the world, and I want to be an expert in change and transition and conflict as a path to excellence. It's just the journey I embarked on. But that said, I'm sitting here now on the other side of it, having moved 32 times, having been in multiple industries. And I found as I went from career opportunity to career opportunity that I was getting more and more frustrated when I saw individuals and organizations not being set up for success when they could have been. And I found a core reason for that is they weren't asking the really important questions up front. They were just starting to do things. And unlike in sport where we have this big goal, it's defined, there's a timeline. Most often in life, we don't, we start a company We have a project and we just want to do our best. And so what did that mean to start helping companies ask those fundamental questions that would not only give them a clear focus and goals, but take the waste out, allow them to clearly define roles, find meaning and purpose and things that make, you know, life and work rewarding, successful and worth getting up for in the morning. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know how to do that. I just started asking questions and I took on some small projects and partnered with a few people. I eventually, my journey and quest led me to an extraordinary man named Tom Patterson, who for people of an older business generation will know his partner. His name was Peter Drucker and Tom worked with Peter Drucker for 33 years. And, uh, Peter Drucker is arguably the father of modern business management, and Peter called Tom the greatest strategic planner that ever lived. So I was privileged to sit at the foot of Yoda, in my world for ten years, and learn a lot about strategy and transition and change and the process of it, so that I could bring that out to you know the people who I wanted to serve.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did your personal life also inform? The way that you were understanding change?
1: I love to learn. I don't like to be stagnant. So I made some choices along the way that were fairly unconventional, leaving some successful careers. I left my publishing career in New York to go start a technology company, which was an abysmal failure, especially from my side. But the technology was great, but I didn't understand things like funding and ability to get things to market and a few other things that are pretty basic. But I'm so glad I had that chapter. Mm -hmm. My life lesson there was I promised myself that I wouldn't stop at Starbucks on the way to work until I got paid. So I drove by Starbucks for 10 months. And that was a lesson I'll never forget.
0: And there was a transition for you from being an athlete and being really singly focused on your own accomplishments to being a dependent spouse, as you put it in your TED Talk. Can you explain that pivot and how you embodied change and what you learned from that lesson?
1: I was standing on the balcony of my office at the time in Chicago and uh, some fast airplanes flew over my head. And I looked up at the Plane in front, the guy was cute, so I ended up marrying him. And that uh put me into the Air Force, which at 39, going from a, you know, pretty significant civilian trajectory and career in life to marrying into the Department of Defense was a big culture shift. And the moment you're referring to was as we were married. We actually spent six weeks apart right after that as he went off to some more pilot training. And then we reconvened at the Air Force Academy at the end of August 2001. And I found myself lost without a business card or title. My friends gone. No one knew what sailing was sitting in Colorado on an Air Force base and really had a complete loss of identity. And I crashed. You know, I literally I fell down on the ground crying, and I'm like, "What did I just do with my life?" I have a plastic card with my name on it, with the Air Force emblem, and it says I'm a dependent spouse. And that was a really hard one for me to understand, grow into, own, and then find out who I was on the other side Mm -hmm. of that fairly unexpected transition in my life. I thought I was going in with eyes wide open, but then showing up at the Air Force Academy, I realized I really didn't know what a commissary or BX was. And mm-hmm. there was a long list of and <laughs> and issues that provided a steep learning curve for me that year and subsequent years.
0: You know, when I heard you tell this in your TED talk, it just sort of, it spoke to me in a way that was, which I think my audience will really respond to as a big dose of empathy. And it's just this message of sort of you're not alone. You know, I think there's that that push and pull between what we do as women and how we navigate. And then becoming interdependent with somebody or something adds a whole nother kaleidoscope of challenges and change that it's just it's there. It's present. And uh, I think we're not alone in that and we navigate through that. But I think it was really interesting to me in hearing your TED Talk, also understand the way you framed it in a way that starts to speak to change and these the anatomy of change, as I'm referring it to, and the mountains and the valley. And I would love for you to, although we don't have a visual here, to try to paint the diagram of the mountains and the way you think about change when you present it.
1: Well, from a visual standpoint, if you think of almost two upside down ice cream cones, and those are your mountains, and in between them, there's a line on the bottom. So the first mountain we'll call Mountain A, and that's your life trajectory. You come out of high school, college, and you pretty much do, you excel. You may have a big goal, you may want a certain career aspiration, you may have family, motherhood, but you get to the top of that mountain secure in who you are, what your label is and everything around you, people interact with you as to that identity and your accomplishments, you know, your challenges, your failures as well as your success, but you're kind of sitting up there and you have your place. But then there often is a time where you say, "Hmm, maybe there's more than this." And you kind of take a look out there on the horizon and see, oh, there's other mountains out there or there could be, or there's a specific one I want to pursue. And the visual I'd give is if you're looking over at that next mountain, whether it's defined or not, the tricky part is there's no gondola to get over there. There's no wire from the top of mountain A to the top of mountain B and no little encapsulated you know, cart that's going to take you there. The only way to get there is to actually leave the top of Mount Ney. So that doesn't sound traumatic, but when you realize all that is entailed in leaving, it means giving up a lot of that identity, giving up the comfort zone of certain people, maybe confusing your family while you'd make a choice of this change, and traversing down, you know, the backside of Mount A to this flat level where you get to, which is the valley. And we hear terms like Valley of Despair. And, you know, you can experience a lot of these emotions because who am I? Why did I do this? I just left this place. Everybody knew how to identify with me. And I had my people and my accomplishments and my accolades and now i'm down here exploring something else and i'm lost mm-hmm. well the beauty of being in that valley or that desert is that's also where the good and hard and wonderful work gets done that's going to help you create what's next and you're not there alone and that's something you have to remember there's so many wonderful incredible resources That you find in that journey in the valley, you'll find mentors and guides and people that have gone before you and people that want to help you. Unexpected. I think unexpected is one of the greatest gifts of that valley time. And that could be, you know, six months for Moses, it was 40 years in the desert. I prayed consistently during that time that it wasn't going to be 40 years for me. (laughs) (laughs) But as I as I said, with the rowers, you know, they, it took them 10 to 15 years to get to that top of mountain A and they're Mm -hmm. rowing, but to get to the top of mountain B and sailing took them six months because they already knew the things that would develop them and how to achieve excellence and how they needed to drive themselves. So just because it took you, you know, 20 years to get to the top of mountain A does not mean that's the journey of B. Things Mm -hmm. are much more accelerated if you're intentional and, you know, you seek the people and the process and the guides and submit yourself to that.
0: Mm -hmm. I see a resemblance in your framing mountain A and mountain B in the valley with even just sort of a Joseph Campbell, act one, right? We've sort of become this thing, this entity, we work up to this peak and then either change happens to us or we initiate change, which is sort of what the scenario that you framed. But in any case, the environment around us changes. And I think that we are often slower than our environment to unpeel the layers that really need to change in order to accommodate our changed environment or the changed circumstances. And I we all experienced a version of this, are still experiencing it to an extent with COVID. But the valley is really where the work happens, isn't it?
1: It is. And it's a gift. It's confusing. And the an issue is it's not only confusing to us, it's confusing to people in our lives.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And this can be one of the hardest realities is that the people that love us the most are the ones that can push back the most on the change we're trying to make in our lives. And it's not intentional. People aren't that love you and your family aren't saying, no, I don't want you to excel at something new or have this fabulous new experience. But are you kidding me? You're not going to be at Thanksgiving? Or, oh my gosh, you are not coming home for Christmas? You're going to miss my wedding? Well, yes, because now I've been hired to lead a National Geographic expedition, and it's going to be over Thanksgiving and Christmas, or whatever Mm -hmm. the new thing that you're coming into. And the reality is, when you pursue your truth and your authentic self, it is going to cost people. The gift, though, is that when you live your truth, you are also giving other people permission and a vision for what it looks like to leave their truth. And that's something that I didn't appreciate back in America Cube fully. I appreciated the accolades, but Sylvia, we got literally hundreds and hundreds of letters from girls and women all over the world. In our gym, which was a huge tent with metal crossbars, we had over 200 a dozen roses that women had sent us to thank us for battling the boys, breaking the glass ceiling, giving them bigger visions for what they could achieve in their lives. And while that seems very heady and, and a lot of responsibility, it's also such a gift because we were just getting up and doing what we were passionate about doing, fulfilling the opportunity that had been given to us and giving it everything. hmm And 25 years later, I know I can speak for every single one of my teammates in whatever corner of the world they're in. We get comments from women Mm -hmm. that say thank you. And, you know, I feel humbled and I don't feel, you know, worthy of accepting that thanks. All we were doing was getting to build Mm -hmm. live one of the greatest experiences of our lives. But it did open doors and change the way women thought about what they could do themselves. And I'll say. It also changed another audience, which is critical. And it changed what I'd call the gatekeepers mm. think what women can do. It wasn't just the women that said, oh, wow, you know, I'm really surprised. Now I think, you know, more things could happen for women. It was the people that hired women that could create access or deny access for women in jobs and opportunity in other sports. And that's a really important piece of what occurs when people live loudly like this.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think that women are underestimated?
1: Well, I know there's that teacher that said something about the biggest mistake you can make is underestimating a woman. But (laughs) yeah, there's so many ways to answer that question and it all comes down to context. Yeah. Yes, very much. I'm of the generation that there was only one of us in any given boardroom or career path. In fact, I cringe, but it's a common dialogue now that, you know, we didn't create opportunity for women because we were the token and there was no room for two. We're in a very different era now where we can now provide the opportunity, we're decision makers, we can open those doors, but that wasn't the dynamic then.
0: So tell me in the world we live in right now for women and girls globally tell me about the world you'd like to see and where do you see the future of women's equality and equal opportunity in sport going
1: great question and the world's a big place and it's a very diverse place and the the needs are very different you know if you look on a scale from the Scandinavian countries where their nation state leadership is heavily weighted on the female side of the equation to where we are in the U.S., and even that's diverse in various different capacities, all the way to developing and underdeveloping countries where, tragically, women are still oppressed at a level that we can't comprehend. The hope is that we bring everyone forward, and that is what we're seeing, but it is with a lot of inertia against things. So what do I think is the success equation or key success factors? I really believe it's women at the decision-making table, whether it's local, national, or global. Mm -hmm. Because when women and diversity are added to the decision-making table, we come up with different answers. We have different dialogues. We have more input we get very tunnel visioned when we're all the same. So if we're all white women on a committee, we have a pretty narrow view of what's going to happen. So whether it's adding women of color, other ethnics, gender, it's very important because we want to Create success, however, we define that. And we really can't get there in an optimal way unless we bring all of our best thinking to the decision making table.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And you play a role in that too. Where do you see yourself having the biggest impact on these issues and in those roles and at the table?
1: Great question. I think a couple of places. One is my own leadership. I've I'm grateful that I've been asked to be at the leadership table consistently in the organizations in which I participate and serve and work and that's given me a important view it also gives me the opportunity to create opportunity. So my own leadership in 2011 a teammate and I of mine from America Cube Katie Pettibone and I started a small nonprofit, which is actually on pause, but uh, called the Rising Tide Leadership Institute. And the thing we learned most when we went into the data on women and leadership globally is there is a success goal that shifts the whole equation. And that's when you get 30% of women or more at the table. One woman's voice or one diverse voice will be clouded over. So one out of 10. Two out of 10, you start shifting the conversation, and at three out of 10, the room is forced to think differently, act differently, bring additional ideas, different ways of discussing to the table, and you're not able to ignore whether it's people groups, ideas, financial solutions, because you have a greater critical mass. And this wasn't something we discovered. This data is substantiated globally in many, many places for over 40 years. To the point, the UN has written policy that nation states won't receive aid unless 30% of their nation state governance is women. And it trickles all the way down to the local level. So, getting more women involved in leadership, creating those opportunities, equipping women, we all have a part to play. And that goes all the way back to literacy. Mm -hmm. It's a very broad trajectory that needs to be covered. And we all have a place to play on that continuum to Mm -hmm. help women and develop them to the leadership table.
0: Tell me the premise of the Rising Tide Leadership Institute.
1: Well, Katie and I, Katie Pettibone, who's a very accomplished attorney, elite sailor who has continued to do extraordinary things on and off the water, including racing around the world a couple times and multiple America's Cups. And we were wrestling with this issue that we know that we've been provided leadership opportunities because we achieved elite levels that are sport. So we looked at that equation and said, how can we help equip women for leadership and the decision-making table and able to compete and contribute in the global economy. So it's always good to work in your own backyard where your own expertise is. And we realized the opportunities that were given to us were because we competed on high-tech platforms with and against men. So that was in Sailing. Then we looked at where else can you do that? And two other categories came up, which are motorsports and aviation. And so we started wrestling with how do we do that? What does that look like? It doesn't mean every woman needs to either sail, fly, or drive cars to be at a leadership table, but there's a lot of learning. There's inspiration. We called it a three-legged stool called C-S-E-A. The first being... Sounds cliche, but it's the most critical starting point. You can't be what you can't see. If you don't know, there's opportunity. If somebody's gone before you, it is almost impossible to get there. The second is E, equip. We can't just have opportunity because we're women or people of color or whatever you know the, the non-majority is. We have to be qualified and equipped. So are we part of equipping these people? You know, what are the training, curriculum, opportunities? But the third is the category that I mentioned previously, which is acceptance and access. And that is not uh, geared toward the women. That is toward the leaders that can create funding opportunity or close the doors for women on the decision making and leadership opportunities. So how do you change their mind? Well, we found when you excel at an elite level in a sport with and against men, there's a lot of assumptions get made that you're qualified for leadership in other areas. And we've seen that play out time and time again. Plus to your question that you asked before about do we underestimate women, that shows people that, yes, you are underestimating women because women can do this. And then that translates to all women, not just the ones you see on boats, planes, and cars.
0: Mm -hmm. So let me ask you something just while we're here, because one of the things I'm fascinated by in the study of leadership is the variation in both the way people lead and the role and expectation of following. There's just so much advice out there. So What is one piece of leadership advice that you've been given that's so remarkable you need to share it or so crappy that you need to warn us?
1: One piece of leadership advice. There's a reason you have two ears and one mouth. And it sounds cliche and glib, but it's so true. If I have one word put on my tombstone that relates to this, I would want it to be perspective. Success comes when we have gathered enough perspective to make good decisions. And to get that perspective, to get that context, we really need to listen and to ask a lot of questions. And I've used a visual that I got from my dear mentor, Tom Patterson, of we need to get to the top of the mountaintop so we can see. So we have to keep asking the questions that get us higher and higher and better and better comprehensive questions so that we can then make good decisions. Because we may think we want to go straight ahead, but if we get high enough, we'll see there's a big river that's going to block our way. We couldn't see on the ground. So we need to get that perspective. And how does that translate? Well, in my sailing world, that translates all into our debriefs, our briefings and our debriefs. We prepare for the day. We know what we want to accomplish. We know what kind of things we're going to practice or focus on when we're racing. But then we have a series of debriefs. We, we talk on the way in from the boat, do just the basic things. We capture a few things at the dock. But then we know at 630, for instance, in most programs, we're going to be in the room with the video, the coaches, the videos don't lie, and we're going to have to unpack the mistakes we made. And it's such a gift because if you don't do that, we're going to go out and do them tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So this debrief, this you know, learning is the key to continuous improvement and it takes a lot of courage to be in those environments because you have to own your mistakes, you have to call out other people's mistakes in a way that's going to contribute to, you know, eliminating them and making improvements. And you have to be able to leave that room and go out and still be bonded as a team and trust one another. So this is the debrief, the learning and then knowing how that conflict is actually the access to improve performance. Mm -hmm. And our society has done us such a disservice by trying to normalize comfort. We want the easy button for everything, just hit that big red button. Well, when you do that, you don't learn, you don't work through conflict, whether it's relationship, performance improvement, something you failed at in work, your budget numbers weren't hit. You've got to dig in and find out why. And so often we want to avoid that pain and, or we want to blame and that doesn't set us up for success. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about money or winning the medal. It's because that's how we develop. That's the number one way I believe we develop as leaders. hmm if we're willing to lead, go with our teams and be in these environments of conflict in order to come out the other side to success. Mm-hmm. But it's hard and it takes a lot of courage.
0: It really does. Courage and vulnerability coupled.
1: Absolutely. There's a. am sure it's been said many times once again from my great mentor, Tom, that truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is sentimentality. So it's the need to have both love and truth in the room. Mm. And when we get in these high-performance team environments, to say these are type A guys is an understatement. They are big egos. But ego is not bad. As you said, if you can be vulnerable enough to put things on the table in the context of improvement, then everybody wins. And we know right away, we all do individually and collectively when somebody's not owning their own stuff, or they're not willing to contribute, or they clam up, or they're too big for it, they're too good for it. That all detracts from what we can achieve together.
0: Mm -hmm. And what would you say to someone who doesn't consider themselves a leader or leadership material?
1: There's a age-old debate of whether leadership is born or grown.
0: <laughs> so exactly. I That's what I'm for, throwing you into. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, thanks for that. It's definitely both. I've done work with this amazing guy named Mark Miller who has had a leadership at Chick-fil-A for years and just one of the top leadership gurus out there and we've wrestled with this and he has this model which I think is so spot on where if you look at levels of one to 10 on talent of leadership versus willingness to grow in your leadership development and to continuously improve. If you have a person that's a seven or eight on leadership talent, just solid, but they don't show up and do the work Mm. and they just think they're going to come in and lead and be the big voice that is going to be far less successful than somebody may be a three, four, five on that innate leadership talent and all the persona that goes with it. But they get up every day. They study, they have guides, they get mentored, they get coached and you and they advance their leadership. I will take that person any day over the quote, star-studded leadership person who just doesn't put the effort in. And it comes really from the core of that love factor. Mm -hmm. I really believe the power behind leadership is love. And whether you phrase that as compassion, believing in a bigger purpose, when you get up every morning and are committed to others, and the big phrase I use, who's committed to your greatness? And when leaders are committed to the greatness in others, and they show up every day doing that, everybody wins. And to be honest, every person on this earth can wake up in the morning and be committed to somebody else's greatness. It doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing, what cards you've been dealt with. And I've seen some people with cards that are so horribly dealt that show up every single day committed to making their family better, the person they interact with on the street. And it blows me away. I do it because I have great circumstances and I get to give above and beyond that. These people give from nothing. And in my mind, that makes them extraordinary leaders.
0: And what is your best leadership quality?
1: Helping people see. What breaks me more than anything is when people are working hard to achieve something or to better themselves, whatever the task may be, and they can't see because they don't have the tools. Mm-hmm. They haven't been taught to ask the question. They're really trying, but they don't have a wide enough perspective. Mm-hmm. This is my passion for wanting every individual and organization in the world to live at their unleashed best success because the joy that comes from that, the win that comes from that for everyone just as a multiplier and it brings health and wholeness and energy. So helping people see and the process of getting there is
0: what I'm committed to.
1: Thank you for asking, because I'm not sure I've
2: articulated
0: it that way. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you did refer earlier to perspective and, and it's sort of coming back to that, that idea that whether it's climbing the mountain or stepping back from ourselves or just simply knowing what is out there for you to be a bridge for that and sort of allow that channel, I think, is just really puts you in a really fortunate position and very impactful. One more leadership question I have for you. What's the hard leadership lesson that you keep learning and unlearning and relearning, that lesson that just the universe just keeps putting in front of you?
1: You are a very good question asker. There's a couple, and I've actually debriefed in my times of failure, and I have seen patterns emerge. One is because I am very strategic focused, I can see a lot of possibility. I have erred in trying to actualize possibility that wasn't mine to actualize. Whether it was to stay at a company too long, be in a group of people, a committee, be on a board, and then I get frustrated and disillusioned or angry and I have learned that lesson. I can see it quickly now. I can get myself out of it. But I see people do it all the time
2: mm-hmm.
1: now that I have more perspective on it. And it's very common because if we can see a great goal, why aren't we doing it? Well,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the funding may not be there. It may not be our decision sphere that we can make those decisions. And yes, that may be a great solution, but we can't make it here. Mm-hmm. And those are hard things to see and we have to either work within the parameters and try and drive success that way or maybe it's the catalyst that, wow, I should get out and do this on my own. Mm-hmm. I can feed people in my town this way or I can help women in this way or I can change the lives of childrens in this way. It doesn't mean the other thing was wrong. It just wasn't the way that, I or you as a person envision that solution can come to bear but the pain is when you stay in it and you know you're fighting upstream and that takes a lot out of you and the tragedy is that it looks like failure all the way around and you have a great organization you're giving it your best and it was a mismatch mm-hmm. so seeing that more quickly is definitely something that I'm very intentional about now.
0: Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it's also resembling action bias, that trait that we are compelled, especially as people that are achievers, to do something, right? The doing is biased.
1: Very much so. And more so probably in our culture than almost any in the world. I mean, we are definitely a fire, (laughs) aim-ready culture. Right. And I'm grateful that the conversation of pause and meditation have become even embedded in the corporate environment. There's acknowledgement now that we need to hit pause, mm-hmm. that we need to be contemplative. I'm a big believer in a morning ritual, whatever yours might be, of not just getting up and working out in the morning, but how do you frame your thinking? Mm -hmm. How do you center yourself? The difference in my day when I do that versus when I don't do it is mind-blowing. First and foremost, from my own experience, but I'm sure if you ask people and they understood what days I did it and which days I did, they definitely prefer that I put my thinking and writing and prayer time and workout time in before I engage
0: with them. So what is your morning ritual?
1: It varies, but I'm a morning workout person and I've ten, I've always been at the gym at 5.30 because I need to get that out of the way to go to work. Many years, that was the first thing I did in the morning. I hydrate and then I go to the gym. Now I actually try and get up earlier, maybe push gym time back a bit and get my contemplative Reading time, and I I really work hard not to read work. This is where I want to read thoughtful things about great thinkers that may be faith based, that may be some leadership development, character development, reading about other people's lives I respect. One thing most people don't know about me is I'm a philosophy major. I think thinking is incredibly important Mm -hmm. and probably you know, a reflection of a lot of lack of thinking in our culture. And I'm not blaming people. We've set this pace for ourselves. We reward action. Mm-hmm. I say it's not about the answers. The real leadership trait, when you, you asked uh, what is one of the biggest leadership traits, and I would say it is questions. There was a New York Times article years ago that I copied and I've taught with since. And it talks about some of the greatest leaders in our country answering that question of what's your greatest and most important responsibility as a leader. It's to ask the questions. And yet we get interviewed for bringing the answers. We get compensated for bringing the answers, but it's the questions that open up possibility and bring a solution, and help us see pending mistakes, and help us manage risks. The answers don't. And so having that time in the morning to ask myself questions, I look for questions. I have a whole question file that I work through then in my journal of questions I want to process. And that helps me greatly in my own thinking.
0: So what's on your nightstand? What are you reading?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Question. Let's see. I have. I'll go directly to my green chair. I have Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal. I have Paul Kohit Colos. I never say his last name right. Yeah, he wrote the Four Spiritual Laws. His new book, The Archer, is amazing. It's beautiful. The Clarity Field Guide by the EOS guys. My utmost for his highest, which is a wonderful devotional by Oswald Chambers, The Daughters of Yalta. These are the Churchills, the Roosevelts, and the Harrimans, a story of love and war. It's a phenomenal book of three young women that literally changed the course of World War II. Anyway, I could go on and on and on. But my husband's very grateful for this newfangled device called a Kindle. Because I don't have a shoe problem, but I have a big book problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I'd love to um, segue a bit and just wrap up with a couple other questions. This podcast is embedded in an idea of flying, both metaphorically and literally. And I'm wondering what flying means to you. It's
1: interesting. I often say go with the first word that comes to your mind. And as you were asking the question, the word freedom just, you know, screamed in my mind. And mm-hmm. I think my first vision emotional connection to flying was the writing of Richard Bach, mm. who wrote Jonathan Livingston Siegel. But he wrote many other books. And for some reason he just struck a chord with me when I was in my teens. And I read a lot of his books. And in fact uh give him credit maybe for part of my marriage decision with oh what was it the bridge across forever i think
0: and al- illusions was yes, that one yes and
1: illusions of the reluctant messiah just but that connection of just soul to flying and freedom and i picked a different path than airplanes and my freedom comes being out on the water but I think very similar. While we're grounded on the earth, instead of flying through the air, we are flying through the water and we're out in the elements and we're disconnected from all the things that constrain us. And that is freedom for me. And it's exhilarating. It's challenging. I've been in terrifying situations that have tested me. And I've been in the most wonderful bonding situations that have developed, forged my greatest friendships.
0: You know, it's interesting to think about your version of change and your approach to change. You were speaking earlier about all of the variables that are involved in sailing as the sort of dynamic environment that you're in. And I'm wondering about some insight into you when you are experiencing change. And we talked about The change happens to us and change can be initiated. So when you are called to bring on change and change is real and you can feel that in your throat, what is the first thing that you do?
1: I think the first thing is perspective. I have my list of questions, but very quickly after that, I do an inventory on fear because fear is real. We never get to the point of, learning to operate in any change environment without fear because it it's what's produced in the unknown but the more we're aware of it the more we can place it in the context of whatever change the more we can mitigate unknown that's a, a fear reducer but fear has become a I won't say life paradigm it's something I learned quite a while ago is that, If you look at all the choices there are in the world, at the bottom of the choice tree is one choice, and that is a choice of either fear or love, and everything stems from that choice. There's a verse that says, there is no fear in love. When there is love, it drives out fear completely. And if you look at the characteristics of fear and love, fear is all about divisiveness, scarcity, isolation, limiting, tearing us apart. I heard a definition of the word devil or Diablo, and it to me, it means to rip asunder. So anywhere we see divisiveness, it's so fear based. And then you look at what are the characteristics of love heal, unity, collaboration, growth, health. And I I say to people, which do you want to live in? And so this choice of fear and love, and we can forget and then we become a victim of it and we get overwhelmed. And that's okay because that's just the context of being human. Mm -hmm. But the more we're aware, the more. We look for the people that bring us back to that love perspective. That when you're in your dark moment, you're going to have dark moments. You may have dark years, but what's your toolbox? Mm -hmm. For me, I went through some really dark times. And I remember I thought, if I can just get up in the morning, the sun will get up. So I go to bed. That was one thing. Another was I had a few people I knew I could call that when I was just down there, it was going to be better when I got off the phone and they weren't going to fix anything. They were just going to be there. And so those kind of things have pulled me through my darkness. And just even knowing I have tools mm-hmm. takes a lot of the stress away because, yes, you can sit with a channel changer and you know your biggest stress is what you're going to watch on Netflix. But that's not the crowd that i get up and aspire to be with every day the people around me and what I want for anyone in their life. So there's going to be change and change is going to bring on fear and what do we do with it? Mm-hmm. Fear and love and it's our choice, so choose love.
0: Wow. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you one more question and I'm going to pivot a little bit to slightly more tactical or just sort of advice that you can give as we wrap up here, I would love to tease out the insight that you may have garnered in the context of being successful in a traditionally male-dominated sport and industry for our audience at large, but specifically here for our male listeners. Because I imagine you've been and you've had some really positive male mentors and you've mentioned some and allies and some that were less so. So to the men in our audience, What specific advice do you have for how to do the next right thing in terms of enabling women and how to be the most effective mentor and co create the structures for sustainable changes for women that support them?
1: I would say the greatest thing you can do is create the opportunity that women can develop and excel. Because I would never ask nor want anyone to hire or put a woman on a team or a company because they're a woman. We want qualified people. But some people and people groups need more help developing because those paths haven't been there. So it takes intentionality to look around and identify somebody with potential and then provide maybe more coaching, more equipping than you might give somebody else who had a conventional trajectory to show up on your doorstep. Mm -hmm. I was on a panel of all women sailors uh, about a month ago with a dear friend and teammate, Joan Tuchette, who's an elite woman sailor and traversed the world, and she's tough. When you say, who do you want with you in a bar fight? It's Joan. (laughs) (laughs) But she said something that I think relates right here, which is as women, we can't just expect to show up and be given opportunity. We have to show intent. We have to develop ourselves. We have to seek learning and mentorship. And those are the things that, look like, oh, she got that job. She got that opportunity. Well, she made that. Very few things in the world are free gimmies. And if they are, and you're not equipped, it won't last. So it's a twofer. It's men creating that opportunity, being aware, seeing women with potential, and then giving them the tools they need. And it's for women, we need to step up and seek and learn and i've been asked you know how did i get where i am in sailing if there wasn't a path well if i look back the one thing is i became an expert in something and that opened the doors for me crazy as it seems i was the low friction bottom coat specialist i made boats slippery on the bottom that wasn't in any curriculum or manual yeah But it gave me the credibility to be then the woman on the boat with 15 guys because I had an expertise to bring to the table. My wish for every woman and every person is that they give themselves permission and know that they have what it takes to live an absolutely extraordinary life. And it's not going to be easy. And you may not be able to see it, but you have what it takes. And it requires courage, but we all have that. We just have to dig into it. And there's a lot of help along the way. I am only where I am because so many people have had compassion and gifts and willingness to pour into my life. And for that, I'm eternally grateful for. But we have one shot to traverse around this life, and for those of us that have, I would even say, the luxury more than the good fortune of choosing, choose your truth, choose your greatness, choose helping other people find their greatness, and when we do that, really amazing things happen. And we're gonna fall down every single day, but if we're doing it together, we pick each other up, and it's good.
0: Yeah, it's that power of doing it together, the team, team spirit.
1: And it's really fun because people have asked me, "Is winning that important?" And I, you know, is winning the only thing? And I'm like, no, you know, you learn a lot along the way, but. Winning is so much better than the alternative. <laughs> <laughs> I love getting shaken poured in my head and I love the party afterwards and the pictures are great. So for me, that's where all this, you know, do we win all the time? No, but getting up every day to be better individually and with my peers, it's worth it because Yeah. However we win is so good. And I want as many people with me when I'm winning as I can get.
0: Yeah, it's those highs that, you know, they're just they're, they're fuel for the lows. And um, they're also just a lot of fun. Thank you, Linda. That's so much for taking this time, being part of this community and this conversation. There is a lot to unpack in the last hour or so that we've talked. And I just really can't express my appreciation enough. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Sylvia. It's been a joy to be with you today, and you've inspired me tremendously to ask bigger and better questions. Thank you.
0: I don't even know how to describe this conversation with Linda. It was insightful and energizing and really got me thinking about the process of change and leadership in a different way. I'm just glad you're here to listen. Thank you for listening to the When Women Fly podcast. I'm super grateful. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter on our website, whenwomenfly.com, and I post new episodes every week. So if this resonates with you, follow, share, review, or send me a note. I don't ask for money from my listeners. I believe in free access, but my sponsors really care if you share. So believe in the transformative power of story. Just share an episode and you will have amplified a story that just might spark a pivotal moment for someone. Let's keep learning together. Be bold, be brave, and fly. I'll see you next time.